Welcome to the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Gruno. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Thomas Conlon from Princeton University, where he is professor of East Asian Studies and History, as well as director of graduate studies. Dr. Conlon is the author of In Little Need of Divine Intervention, published by Cornell in 2001, as well as State of War, The Violent Order of 14th Century Japan, published by Michigan in 2003. His most recent book is From Sovereign to Symbol, An Age of Ritual Determinism in 14th Century Japan, published by Oxford in 2011. We're delighted to be joined today by Tom Conlon of Princeton University. Uh, Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Tristan. I'm really happy to be here in beautiful Vancouver. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Uh, I asked you here because I... I'd really like to hear your thoughts about perhaps the place of the Meiji Restoration in Japanese history. I know a lot of your research has focused on uh, the earlier uh, medieval period and Sengoku period, but uh, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts looking forward into the Meiji period. How exactly does this fit into your research and your own thinking? Well, thank you, Tristan. I mean, I, I really appreciate having the chance to talk about the Meiji period because uh, often very few people ask what a medievalist or a person who focuses on the 14th to 16th centuries would think about uh, those later times. Uh, I, I find that the Meiji period, um, or just the, knowing the Meiji events is quite essential as I do my research because uh, to a large degree a lot of the uh, historical and historiographical projects um, which shaped the compilation of sources and all that happened in the Meiji period. So understanding their biases and other perspectives is, is quite helpful. Um, but that being said, I find coming at it from a medievalist and looking at the earlier patterns, I, sometimes I see things that, that aren't really brought up um, and noticed. And, and I'll mention one, one particular thing. Is that I think in a lot of ways, one of the defining elements of the Meiji period, obviously, is that it's, you know, it's named after an emperor. It's focused on the Meiji emperor. And arguably the most significant political act was the fact that the emperor was moved out of Kyoto. And everyone takes this as a given, right? That just happened early on, and, and, and then we move and talk about other things. But when I've, I've been doing some research in Western Japan, um, in the province that, you know, it's now it's the prefecture of Yamaguchi, um, and, you know, it, it was the Choshu domain, and I'm, I'm focusing on a family called the Ouchi, which were which are arguably uh, the most important uh, regional magnet family of, of their time. And I was able to sort of uncover some very interesting sources which suggest that in 1551, at the moment of sort of maximum turmoil in central Japan, the Ochi uh, started engineering a plan to move the emperor to, to their town of Yamaguchi. And we know about it because a number of courtiers were there and they said they wanted to revitalize the Sechie and have the emperor there. And you even had low-ranking courtiers who worked with like pal- making palaces. They were all there. Um, it, that didn't happen. There was, it, it was directly linked to a coup which resulted in the destruction of, of the Ochi leader at the time and all the courtiers there. And there's a huge gap in the sources. But I do believe that a memory of that event remained. In fact, we know it remained because if you read some accounts of it from Hideyoshi's time, uh, they talk about, oh, the Ochi were about to move the emperor. They plan on moving that. But when you look in the Tokugawa sources, they relied on the very same chronicles, three chronicles, all of which say the Ochi are trying to move the emperor, and then the Nochi Kagami, the Tokugawa compilation, doesn't mention it at all. 
So we have a very clear case that they are explicitly ignoring this. And that remains, I think, because the Tokugawa obviously wanted to focus on the importance of a, of a military rule, um, and they didn't want to emphasize that emperors can be moved. And I can't prove that people in Choshu uh, knew this, but I, I imagine that you know they were very historical-minded, and so I, I think that surely people were aware of something because to, unless it's just a remarkable coincidence that one attempt to move the emperor and the other successful one came originated um, by people who were from that area in western Japan. Now the other thing that I, I found really interesting is that I've, I've been fortunate enough to uh, travel around in areas of you know uh, western Japan uh, including you know the, the Yamaguchi which is the old Choshu domain um, and then the old Satsuma domain in the south. And one of the most remarkable things that exists in both places are reverberatory furnaces, uh, which uh, if you, I don't know, probably most people don't know a reverberatory <laughs> furnace, but it's, and I don't have the, the exact temperatures at the tip of my tongue on this one, but they were, they basically were furnaces that could I, melt metals at around 1800 degrees centigrade, something very high heat, and that allowed um, you know, uh, basically, you know, uh, steel cannons to be to be manufactured. Things far more, far more uh, powerful and str and strong than than the the older bronze cannons. And and what struck me was that oh, these exist before the the Meiji period even began. And uh, the one in, in Satsuma in the south, I thought it was especially ironic because here you have in that domain the most advanced f furnace for manufacturing heavy weaponry uh, in the world. And it's something that, that the Japanese um, through, you know, th learned through the Dutch. And, and the idea of sort of like, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the cannons that they were, they were sort of basing it on would be a breech-loading cannon. Particularly, there's one called the Armstrong Cannon, which the uh, English adopted in their army in 1860. And we know that the Japanese were manufacturing these when they were attacking the Tokugawa in 1867. So I think one thing that's quite remarkable is they really had up-to-date knowledge of the most advanced military technology. And this happened before the so-called opening of Japan by Perry or what have you. you know, so when he visited and he, he showed electricity and trains and other things, he had no idea that specialists in these various provinces already knew all about electricity and they could make the most advanced cans. So there's even cases, I know um, when the British bombarded Satsuma, that, uh, they, that the, you know, the Japanese had good cannons, so they were able to kill the British admiral. And they were sure they got the guns then from the Russians. They never imagined that, 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 you know, that the Japanese could manufacture such things. So, so that's something I find really, really quite amazing. So when you have like the Last Samurai film, um, which ha is set nominally in Satsuma and has all these people not relying on modern weapons, like no, Saigo Takamori's revolt was where he was, was basically like a Fort Sumter moment. He was trying to get hold of the, you know, all the weapons that the state had, and why did they end up with using swords? Is because there was they ran out of bullets, uh, and so. But but that's sort of all that element has been misunderstood. So so I found that 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 keen awareness of military technology, um, and a willingness to adopt it immediately, as being really impressive. 
And, and I think that that's a little bit underestimated in a lot of studies, where it tends to focus on other important things. But I, I doubt many people are aware of uh, the fact that, that all these areas were making their own revivatory furnaces in the 1850s. And if we just start the story with Perry's arrival in 1853, then certainly we're not going to get that long view history, that long understanding of military technology and developments. Exactly. When it, even if you just if, imagine these narratives started in the 1840s with, with the reverberatory furnace bill in Saga, it changes everything. And, and I think that's a very effective way to, to look at the, the end of the Tokugawa period is not being so close, which kind of goes against the Meiji. It's sort of like, so in that sense, all these military technologies, there is an awareness of it. And the people that know so much about it, what, I mean, this is what makes Meiji special, is that those people are then put in a position or they've, they've they sort of pull themselves up to that position of authority so they can go around throughout the world. And if, the, if you know a reverberatory furnace, you're going to know exactly what kind of information you need, what materials you need. Um, and I think that that's why it's so incredibly effective. You know, during Tokugawa times, people knew how to make a reverberatory furnace, but the people negotiating with Perry, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, had no clue. And, and, and I think that the, the Meiji changed that. And that's something that, you know, the, for good or ill, because people talk a lot about the, and there were imperialism, lots of bad things come, come out of that. But another level, these young men in their 20s and 30s and 40s who, who were able to amass this knowledge and then, then change so many things, it's quite impressive in many ways. about uh, the place of the major restoration in, in your research and how that factors in. I, I'd also like to hear your thoughts uh, on perhaps wh where does the major restoration fit in, say, the pedagogy of Japanese history and, and how does it come into your classroom? Oh, well, thank you, Tristan. That's a, that's a great question because uh, since I'm at Princeton and I have uh, Federico Marcone and Shell Guerin, two wonderful colleagues, uh, we, I pretty much cover the pre-Tokugawa, pre-1600, and then Federico Marcon does the Tokugawa in the 19th century, and then Shell Guerin covers the Meiji onwards. So, so Professors Guerin and Marcon will touch on, on um, uh, Tokugawa. I know that even, even um, uh, Professor Marcon had a class in 1868, for example. Uh, but for myself, uh, I really don't have the opportunity uh, to, to address it directly in my lectures because I, I generally uh, end um, at earlier times, the 18th century, the 17th century, 16th century. It depends on the class. Um, it, when I teach my graduate students about sources, uh, actually because so many books came out of the Meiji period, I end up talking a lot about like the Tokyo Historiographical Institute and other things. So I talk about it in that sense for, for a, a specialized audience, but it doesn't make it my lectures at Princeton. Uh, that being said, I mean, I, I, I taught at Bowdoin for a, a number of years, and I was the only Japanese historian. And uh, one thing I, I did, as I always did every year, a sequence of, of you know, the, the origins of Japanese culture and civilization and then the emergence of modern Japan or something like that. And, um, and I divided the courses, so, you know, at it, it, it Hideyoshi. And my point with Hideyoshi is, and I, I really, I emphasize the Weberian concept of, of modernity being linked to monopoly over coercive force, is that Hideyoshi is modern. And 
I know that it, it was very interesting to these students because they would they would they were taken aback and they would they would want to debate this, uh, and because they always assumed that modern has to be fairly recent. So we'd start off the class with good discussions of well, what is modern? Is it technology? Is it different things? And so it was very helpful in a lot of ways. And uh, and and that class too, um, I covered from Hideyoshi to the occupation, and I I tried to almost replicate real time and that the majority of the class was on the Tokugawa and it's changes because I want to get a sense of sort of some shared expectations regarding governance, society, uh, and, and also the changes toward nativism and other things like that. But I, I would focus on those things and then I would bring out the political events about the fall of the Tokugawa and I would cover from Meiji's occupation in a month. And so it was, I wanted to really impart upon the students the incredible rapidity of change. Uh, and it was significant, but I also wanted to give them temporally the, the, the same amount of time so they could just see of how fast it's changing and how confusing it is. And I find that, that often a lot of courses will focus so much on Meiji, but you spend, you spend more time talking about Meiji than existed in the whole Meiji period. Okay, I'm, I know I'm exaggerating there, but there is that tendency, and I think it's really important to, to give that, that, that real sense of, of confusion and not knowing and, and debates. And, and uh, so that's what I tried to do uh, for, for that class. Is the question, what is the place of the Meiji period, even a relevant question in talking about Japanese history as a whole in the broadest sense? Possible. Well, I think that's that's a that's a great question because, in many ways, the very sort of textbook understanding of Japanese history I think is shaped often by a lot of the the various accounts from from the Meiji period. Uh, you know, there was there was so much interest in in compiling the sources and and that kind of sort of reconstructing the old histories that have been done in ancient times. And, and a lot of the scholars really sort of debated about what are, what are the periods of Japanese history. And I do think that by the time you get to the late Meiji period, um, there's, there's a, a number of works, uh, one that came out of Waseda I think was most, most impressive, where they would have like the Jidaishi, the, the, the era history of Japan. And you have the Nara era, then you have the Heian era, then Kamakura, then Nambokcho, or Northern and Southern Courts, uh, Muromachi, and then they would go into the unifiers. Uh, some would even, uh, I think it was Tanaka Yoshinari, would even have like the, the history of Oda Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, Iyasu, um, and then they would go into the Tokugawa age. And, and though, if we think about it, almost every basic understanding of Japanese history is, is, is loosely uh, based on that. Um, it, there are some exceptions, obviously. I mean, I think one of the biggest changes uh, was uh, warring states is coming in um, and uh, I think that that came out of I could talk more about that Mira Shuko and people at Kyoto University uh, they were focusing on that so now we tend to have war in states not just the Ashikaga era the other thing I think you see is that the northern and southern courts I mean a lot of my research I've been talking about how important that is but it really fell from the wayside and what we have is the Muromachi era kind of expanded uh, but it expanded to cover the early 14th century before the Muromachi region mattered in any way. So in some ways, you know, we could, the, there was a problem with the, the northern and southern courts was thought to be too emperor-centric, so we removed it, but then the, the rationale for that becomes a little bit sort of, uh, it becomes a lot more difficult to understand the rationale for that age. Um, and, and these divisions, durable as they are, are problematic. I mean, Heian is problematic because you focus on where the capital is located, 
And I would argue that the three centuries of the Heian period are so distinct, each should have its own age, the collapse of the early legal system, the courtly society, and the rise of the retired emperors. The same thing, Kamakura, the Kamakura era is problematic because uh, I don't believe that the Kamakura Bakfu was the dominant governing entity of Japan during this time. It was still the Heian court. But then you don't want to have the Heian period go on for that many more centuries, so that will cause some confusion. Uh, so so I, I would say that that's one thing we see with this sort of this, the history of Japan is that, um, yeah, the, the major divisions uh, uh, remain. Uh, and the other element that is dominant is, and this is where they are successors to the Tokugawa, they very much focus on the importance of a warrior governor of Bakufu. And they see that as being the essential governor of Japan. And so that's why they would they have the Tokugawa history, the Muromachi or the Ashikaga history, and then the Kamakura history, because they really see that as mattering so much. And, and I think that's, again, problematic, because the, it, it then leads people to think that the court really didn't matter, uh, except for the ancient period through Heian, which gets part of that title, and then Meiji again. So they, they make an artificial link and cause people to kind of skip over the middle period and assume that, oh, the courtiers in the middle times were just involved in poetic activities and nothing else. And, and so I think that skewed scholarship in some ways. And I also believe these categories uh, don't work, and that's why it's so difficult for people to really understand the middle period. Speaking about all, all these time periods and, and how do we divide Japanese history into bite-sized chunks of time, uh, it seems like many of these divisions are bookended by warfare. And uh, this recalls something that you wrote in, in your book, State of War, that war can actually be a very transformative force in society. Well, it's, thank you very much. I mean, what I, what I find is that, you know, for a long time, if we think about, like, the role of military history, is that uh, it became delegated to people who are focusing on tactics. And, and, and I think particularly after the rise of the Annal School, where this idea that the wars and these events are just foam on the tides of change, which are these more demographic and social processes, that after the First World War, there was a real movement away from looking at warfare as being uh, something so central. Um, and I remember even when I was a graduate student applying for grants, uh, some people, you know, when you go for the interview, I was pointedly asked, well, why should someone possibly care about that? And, and that's why I realized that, you know, when the, the institutions and laws and ideals of the state are directed toward destroying another element of that, uh, then it, it really does change things because power to remain must be flexed. And because of that, then anything which cannot function will just disappear. And so I, I do think that in some way that the wars, this, this focus on wars um, matters because they are periods of very strong kinetic change. And, and often then what, ha what you end up afterwards is very different from what existed before. Uh, and so I think that, that that's where when we go back and look at these older periodizations where we see it sort of they're, they're sort of, you know, uh, bookmarked, as you said, by, by warfare. That's because in the earlier times, they, they might not have expressed it that way, but people understood how very different these, these various areas are. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's what I found. I mean, and I, I found too, I like looking at processes and how things unfold as opposed to 
um, just just focus it on the institution because because uh, yes, institutions are important. You don't need to know how authority exists, how how messages are transmitted. But more than that, I think sometimes you can get sort of a very sort of, you know, legalized approach. We say, oh, well, the, the emperor is the person who's sitting on the throne. And I would say that, no, the, the key question is what is sovereign authority? And that is something that's demonstrated, not something which is appointed. And, and, and I think that that's very crucial to understanding a lot of elements. Either who is a great leader? They have to win wars. Um, who is the sovereign? And I think this is one thing where a lot of the debates about like the emperor versus retired emperor miss is that it's, it's the, the, the person who is the chiten no kimi, the person who can enact sovereign rights. Um, and, and that's where I always thought that like, you know, people talk about Ashikaga Yoshimitsu and it's like, there's no question from a view of the rituals that he's performing that he was the sovereign even though he was not of imperial blood or appointed to that position. And so I think that there's, there's some real help to looking at more how, how, who is doing things, who is the engine of history or what is the engine of history, and, and clarifying that, and that can help you then sort of get a better understanding of what is the big picture. So coming back to you know, looking at these various warrior governments and all that, it's very clear to me that particularly from the 1240s to 1331, Kamakura is not... It, driving things. They're reacting. And I believe that the Ashikaga, particularly from the only war onward, are not driving things as well. Uh, but then war in states doesn't work because there's all these disparate groups. And, and so, so one of my sort of interventions is I'm, I'm going to be talking about a, a very powerful family in the West called the Ochi. And I'd like to argue that the period from around 1460 to, to 1550 is the age of, of, the, of the Yamaguchi or the age of Oji Dominion because I see this family in the far west as actually engaging in a number of court rights. They have the strongest military force. They're engaging in a lot of trade. And so I, I, that's what I would like to sort of do with my, my research is to come up with a much more coherent way of looking at Japanese history so that we focus each age is really focused on either the process or the individuals or the entities which are driving that change. Hearted questions. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, if you could go back to the period of time that you study, whether it's the Meiji period or, or, or any other time in Japan, what would be one thing that you would introduce to the people of that time? Oh, introduce. I don't. I think I would. Um, I was thinking more in a sort of as a historian, a very self-serving thing. I love to bring them iPhones, so that they could all then take selfies and, and record things and do that. Because I, I once saw when I was down in, in Kagoshima, like I think one of the Shimazu had an early camera, and seeing it with how what they saw as important was so different from a lot of the European photographers. And so I would love to see, like, okay, Ashikaga Takuji selfies, or what, what does the Mount Kenshin take pictures of? And so I think that would be 
that would be great for me to get all kinds of, you know, maybe they would do podcasts or something, you know. So, so that, that's what I, I would want to introduce something. I wouldn't give them the means to reproduce the iPhone technology because who knows what that would have caused. But I think that would be so great to see, you know, like a hey on courtiers, you know, what, what kind of things would he take pictures of? And that, that's what I would like to bring back, yeah. All right. And how about uh, another lighthearted one? Um, What's one place in Japan? Anytime you go back to Japan, you say, I have to go to this place. Uh, do you have a place like that? Well, there's, there's a number of places I really like, and I try to get back, but often I, I travel enough and I can't get back to every place. But I, I almost invariably go back to Kyoto. Um, and my wife's from there. It's just, I, I love Kyoto. And I do have a favorite place in that there's near the north, uh, it's, it's a place called Demachianaki. And they have a, a, the best set of two things. One is there's a coffee place called Maki Coffee. And they have the best cold brewed Dutch coffee that uh, I've ever had. So I always have to get that. And just across from the road there, there's a, a, a it's, it's called it's a, a, a mochi, which is the rice cakes. And it's, it's a mame mochi, which are these red azuki bean mochi. And, and it's, called, it's the place is Tamba, which is, is you know, for to the what, north west of Kyoto. Uh, and so it's, it's Tambo no Mami Mochi. As far as I'll go in, I'll get my Mami Mochi. Uh, lots of tourists are there. You have to wait in line a long time. And then I have my, my cold Dutch coffee. So that's one there. I'm like, it's good to be in Japan. It's a nice endorsement for this. <laughs> and I, I'm not a stockholder in any way. So <laughs> They are not sponsoring They're this not, podcast. No, I can't. <laughs> and maybe one last more thoughtful question. If you... Um, if you had your, if you had the chance, you know, what character might you suggest for the next Nengo? Oh, so for the next era name, that's oh, that's a tough one. Um, that's really tough because they usually you need something from like the ancient classics. You need to debate these things, and the problem is most of the auspicious characters uh, were used to cover over times of real turmoil, right? So, so there's always this sort of sometimes ironic feel about, about uh, uh, some of these. Um, I, I would go with one uh, that I know was like in the Ming times, but not as Japanese era was as common at all, and that's Raku, Tanashimu, to enjoy, hmm. because, you know, instead of, I mean, they already done Hei, which is either peace or just, you know, things continuing along smoothly, which is quite a good character for one. But I think that maybe Naku would be a good one because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it'd be kind of, it'd be fun to it'd start fun. with something new. Yeah. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.